This morning we're going to be talking about the issue of depression. The issue of depression. I want it to sink into our minds this morning, um, scripturally, how the Bible talks about this very common issue that we wrestle with in life. Psalm 34, 18 says this, let this word sink in to your heart. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted. He saves those who are crushed in spirit. Now, what I want you to see from that particular psalm and, and many others that are like it is I want you to see the closeness and the nearness of the Lord in our brokenness and the way in which the scripture helps us to, to see and understand that us being broken is not in and of itself abnormal. We often fret the idea of our frailty and our brokenness. Yet here in the Psalms, what the psalmist is telling us is that the Lord is close in those moments. And I want to see if we can make that evident today as we talk about how we minister to each other in seasons of depression and seasons of despair. Maybe even how we allow others to minister to us in seasons of despair and seasons of depression. Now, when I talk about this issue, I'm going to lay some things out up front. Uh, we need to make sure we clearly understand definitions when we talk about this issue of depression. And I'll use that language, but I use the idea of depressive feelings um, more so than the idea of depression itself. Okay. Now, why do I distinguish it that way? In our current culture, the way in which we see and understand depression is as if it's a thing that you have, as if it's a disease that, that you have, as if you have, like you have cancer or something like that. I want us to distinguish what we're talking about here. Because even in the, and, and I want you to get this impression fully to understand how the secular world understands this issue as well. It's really important that you understand how the secular world understands it. When we think about depressive feelings, okay, the sadness, the darkness, and, and listen, I want to make very clear, when, when we talk about this issue of, of depressive feelings, there are different levels of degree at which people feel at different moments in time issues of, of despair and depression. Some is certainly much more mild. Some can be quite debilitating. So there are differing levels and, and varying levels of this issue of despair. But when we talk about the, the issue of depression or depressive feelings or that state that we feel, um, maybe even frequently for some of us, uh, what we're talking about are, are symptoms. We're talking about symptomology, okay? For example, we've constantly, in our secular sciences, we've, we have constantly looked and appealed to and tried to search for some uh, reduced explanation for why it is that we as human beings struggle with depression and despair. We've looked in lots of different places, lots of different explanations from anywhere from mysticism in relation to religion all the way to uh, reduction of our biology as to why we experience things like this. And up to this point in our history, we've not found a simple explanation for that. 
I want to refer you back to a previous lesson that we did. I'm not going to rehash all of that here, where we talked about the chemical imbalance theory, and that's been the most prevalent in our modern world, but, but this is not unusual. Uh, historically, the humoral theory was another attempt at explaining melancholy, for example, um, by simply a biological reductionism. Is this can be explained by something that's not going well in your body, in our in our Modern way that we describe this is this is something that's not going well because something's broken in, in your brain. Uh, there's been nothing that's been found to demonstrate that or to, uh, to prove that really whatsoever at all. In fact, it's actually been more demonstrable through scientific inquiry um, that simple uh, production of neurotransmitters in your brain um, do not contribute to uh, this issue of depression. I'll refer you back to a 1984 study um, that was done by the APA, the American Psychological Association, or American Psychiatric Association. Anyway, let's move forward. I want us to think about this issue, okay? So let's take something like hypothyroidism. There's a likelihood that someone in this room has even experienced something like that. And one of the symptoms that you get from having hypothyroidism, uh, that's an irregularity of the production uh, of, uh, of, your uh, of your thyroid, one of the symptoms you, you experience are depressive feelings or, or depressive states. Now, one of the things I want to make is a distinction here, and this is really, really important, okay? The problem is not depression causing hypothyroidism. Do you see the connection? The, the problem is your, your thyroid is not functioning properly, and as a part of that, now a symptom is that we experience different darknesses of the soul, so to speak. Does that make sense to you? Now, this is a really important nuance, and the reason is because in our culture today, we often describe depression in and of itself, in, in clinical terms, as if it's the cause of something, or it, it is the, the, the problem itself, when by and large what we've seen is that depression is, is an expression of something. Depression, depressive feelings are symptoms of something greater. That's actually the testimony of Scripture. It's consistent with what we see, even uh, what we've understood medically up to this point. And so it's important that we understand the distinction. So when we talk about definitions, turn to Psalm 42. Psalm 42. I'm going to do my best. We have an hour today, which is amazing. Uh, and so I'm still going to struggle uh, to get done, but it's just the reality. Uh, so Psalm 42. Now, you're familiar with this psalm. And it's funny to me how we often are constantly posturing ourselves, waiting on what the next scientific inquiry will be or discovery will be about things like mental health or mental illnesses, okay, like depression, for example. And we do that in such a way that that's almost dismissing that the Bible ever talks about it. So we sort of think about it like this. Well, <clears throat> you've got to convince me of this whole biblical counseling way of seeing uh, despair and depression because the scientific world has it all figured out, okay? That's, that's really, really common. And, and it's okay. I don't mind the burden of proof because the Bible talks a lot about this state of our being, being in despair, feeling depressed, feeling overwhelmed, being hopeless, right? Being faint, uh, our hearts fainting. That's a common way to express the experiences that we have 
in humanity. So in, in, for us as believers, we should want to inquire to find out what does the Bible have to say about these things rather than posturing ourselves primarily to seeing what does the secular world say about these things? Because here's what they're doing. They're simply just taking data that they see and what experiences people have, and they're trying to give explanation for it without the same reality that you and I would say is true relative to the Scripture. And so what they're doing is not really evil. What they're trying to do is to explain what people experience from the knowledge that they have. But if we understand God to be real, God to be true, and that his word is sufficient and his word is authoritative over our life and it expresses the experiences that we have, we ought to be deeply concerned about what the scripture says about these types of human experiences. And I think you would be um, really shocked at the depth and level that the Bible describes the heartache, the difficulty, the weakness of our own soul to deal with the tribulations that we have in life. And you'll find that reflected in the scriptures are the depths of your types of experiences that you feel on a regular basis. And so we need to set the stage for what the scripture describes. Now, we use, again, we use this term depression in our world. We even describe it in terms of of being clinical. I'm going to get to that in a second and see if we can distinguish But this is one of the places, one of the many places where we see the psalmist wrestling with this type of feeling. And I want you to hear, I'm going to to read uh, bigger sections of this psalm so you can can pay attention and and see how this unfolds. Verse 1, as the deer pants for the water brook, so my soul pants for you. Do you ever just pause and wonder what created that type of longing? What created that type of desire? We like to quote that. It's like perfect on, you know, all kinds of stickers and refrigerator magnets and, you know, book, uh, what do you call them? Things that go in your book. Those things, yes. Um, We love to have this passage everywhere. And, And it's true, our soul desires and pants, but what's the context? My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night. While they say to me all day long, where is your God? These things I remember and I pour out my soul within me for I used to go along with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God. This is even a mature person in the people of God with the voice of joy and thanksgiving, a multitude keeping festival, verse five. And this is a question that you probably ask a thousand times and the way in which you answer it matters Why are you in despair, O my soul? And why have you become disturbed within me? His remedy, hope in God, for I shall again praise him. I think that section, if you were to continue to read through, you'll see that this is the constant struggle of the psalmist's heart. As he's asking, why am I struggling and being in such despair? The idea of despair just meaning it's the absence of hope. That's really what the word depression is trying to get at, is there is a lack of hope. We feel as if we are hopeless, purposeless, purposeless, and meaningless in the moment. And so if we were to to take a step back, and and you were to think, and maybe we could do some sort of dialogue, and you were to, to define in the way in which our culture defines depression or depressive feelings, What words would you say in the scripture, do the scripture writers use, does God use in codifying his word? 
What does he use to describe this type of experience for us? And these words are are myriad in the scriptures. I've already mentioned some of them to you. The idea of being downcast. This word is translated in Psalm 42 as being downcast. The idea of our hearts fainting. The idea of being hopeless. The idea of despair. All of these ideas really communicate what our modern uh, ideas are relative to depression. So what's the distinction? I'm going to warn you the way in which Richard Baxter warns us here. Because what you're seeing is a discrepancy. What you're seeing is a difference, a distinction in the way in which we understand the data of the experiences that we have. And there's a secular way to describe that. And remedies come with it. And there are biblical ways to describe some of the experiences that we have and remedies that go along with that as well. This is what Baxter says. And I think we have to be consistent in our doctrine, in the way in which we believe the scriptures to be authoritative inerrant and sufficient in every area of life and not be tempted to compartmentalize ourselves with some of the experiences that we have. And so we have to, that's all I'm asking is we be consistent doctrinally with what we believe the scripture says and how it describes our experiences and who God is as, as an answer to all of those problems that we have, which we'll see later. This is what Baxter says, and I think this is a good warning for us. Hold close to Scripture sufficiency, or you you will never know what to hold to. And so the challenge for us, maybe one of the greatest challenges in our culture, is how we think about experiences like depression and despair and being downcast and being faint-hearted. Where you begin is really important. If you begin with the Scriptures and start defining these experiences the way God does in the Scriptures then you're going to be panting in the same way that the psalmist describes here for God to give answer to this, for God to give answer to the longing of your soul through whatever it is that you're walking through at that given moment, and no matter the degree and depth that you're walking through at that particular moment. But what I'll have to say is that most of us don't begin there. Most people in the church really don't have a concept that the Bible even speaks to any depth or level about those experiences. This is sort of how we do this. Is we, we say, well, if I'm sad about some sort of small thing, well, that's the kind of like level that the Bible gets to in the human soul. And so, yeah, the Bible's helpful and sufficient for those types of things. And then it's like, you know, we have this other category of really deep, dark issues and struggles in life, and that that has to be explained by something else. And so we tend then in those cases to build a definition that's given in the culture. And listen, this is really common to us, and I think this is one of the ways in which we're deceived consistently. And did you know, by the way, that one of the primary things that the New Testament writers write to us and warn us about is the ways in which we, even as believers, can be deceived. And so we need to be cautious about that constantly, that we can be deceived. Even what we believe to be reality, uh, is we think it to be true, we can be deceived. So we need to be cautious about that. But our primary posture is often to see what's out there and how they understand things and, and what can we get as a remedy from that. Now, I say all that, and, and please refer back to a couple of the other talks that we've had relative to science. This is not to, to dismiss science. But what I would venture to say is that what most, of, most people think in our culture is that the secular world, uh, they believe the secular world has this whole thing figured out and sorted out um, more than they really do. 
Okay, I'm going to give you an example. So let's start with the way that the secular world describes this thing. First of all, let me say that, that, that the issue of depression is real. The issue of feeling depressed is a real thing. It's not a false thing. It's something that that's, we actually experience, again, to varying degrees. So I'm not being dismissive about that. However, the, the DSM, for example, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, it's now in its fifth edition, which has just been revised in, in recent months. It describes depression in a couple of ways, okay? And notice the word that I use, describes. It describes this issue of depression in a couple of ways. Now, notice that this issue of depression itself, okay, what's described as clinical depression, that, that category is, what is a diagnosis called major depressive disorder. Now, that categorization in the DSM, okay, it's not, it's not like other pathologies in medicine or else it would appear in a medical handbook, a medical desk reference of some sort. It appears in the DSM because they don't know what causes it. It's explained very clearly in the beginning of the DSM. You can read the first 20 pages of it, and you can see in the introduction they use the word etiology, and that just means cause. They don't know the cause of any of the disorders the over 500 diagnoses that appear in the book, they don't know the cause. Shocking, right? So um, that's, that's the first thing that we have to understand. Now, what I want to do is just go through, walk through very briefly, um, and, and let you hear the criteria. I intentionally didn't put it in your notes. First of all, it's really long, costs a lot of paper. And then second, uh, I just want you to hear it, okay? What, what we have here are simple descriptions of symptoms that a person is experiencing, now, very, we, we don't um, take other medical issues, we, we use symptomology, of course, but to narrow down as a process of elimination to try and figure out, okay, what is the, the source, what is the actual cause? With a lot of these mental disorders, we, we don't do that. We just, we take the symptoms and then we try and diagnose based on that when there's been no discovery of an underlying cause up to this point. And I want you to hear the, uh, the lack of scientific vigor that explains or categorizes depression in the way in which we diagnose depression in the, in the secular world. The DSM outlines that the criteria must look like this. And when I say criteria, these are the explanations, okay? That an individual must be experiencing five of the nine symptoms listed in the DSM over a two-week period in order to be diagnosed, okay? Now, here's what's interesting. The man who wrote this criteria out back in the 1990s named Alan Francis, uh, he made some really interesting statements. He was asked, uh, Alan, why is it two weeks and not one week? Why is it two weeks and not three weeks? Now, that's a valid question, wouldn't you say? Like, why are we looking at these things and why do you have to have five of these over two weeks? What's so significant about two weeks? And, and what you expect would come out after that is some deeply scientific, uh, scientifically validated explanation. And he gave a one-word answer. You want to know what it was? Arbitrary. Arbitrary. We just chose that two weeks would give some sort of sustaining power of these experiences that a person was having. Wow. This is what it says. You have to have um, five of the nine of these for, over two, for a two-week period. And at least one of the symptoms should be either depressed mood or, number two, loss of interest or pleasure. Here they are, okay? Number one, depressed mood most of the day, nearly every day. That's a symptom, okay? I'm not denying that we don't experience that. That's true. But this is a description of what we're experiencing, not a prescription, not an explanation as to why we have it and how we fix it, okay? 
Number two, markedly diminished interest or pleasure in all or most all activities most of the day, nearly every day. Number three, significant weight loss when not dieting or weight gain or decrease or increase in appetite nearly every day. Number four, insomnia or hypersomnia nearly every day. Number five, a slowing down of thought and a reduction of physical movement observable by others, not merely subjective feelings of restlessness or being slowed down. Number six, fatigue or loss of energy nearly every day. Number seven, feelings of worthlessness or excessive or inappropriate guilt nearly every day. Number eight, diminished ability to think or concentrate or indecisiveness nearly every day. And some of you right now are diagnosing yourself with depression. Number nine, recurrent thoughts of death, recurrent thoughts of suicidal, or suicidal ideation without a specific plan or suicide attempt or a specific plan for committing suicide. And the only caveat that's given in the, in the bottom section is that these things can't be caused by substance abuse. Okay. So now, if we look at the criteria, what we see are descriptions of what we experience in life. And, and we would say that, okay, have, have some of us, and I, don't raise your hand, but have some of us experienced those things? And it, nearly every person in this room can say yes. Like, I've experienced this, and sometimes it's been enduring even two weeks. Uh, and this is, the, this is the basic idea. So the question then becomes, are we medicalizing normal? Are we taking what's normal to the human experience and are we now creating medical categories so that we think we, we have some sort of grip and understanding of what really happens in the recesses of the soul of a human being? I think it's a valid question. And even a godless man who wrote these things wrote a book called Saving Normal. His name is Alan Francis, as I mentioned before. And that's his whole point is I think we are moving to a place where we are medicalizing what things that are normal to the human experience. And he calls it diagnostic inflation, where we're giving the broadest categories possible to be able to diagnose people, to give them some sort of explanation as to why they struggle with what they struggle with. And listen, when we put on blinders to see life from that perspective, it naturally begins to dismiss the way that we think about the scripture and its explanations for the problems that we have in life. And so we have to be cautious. I think we have to be very, very careful in how we approach these. Now, I think those nine things have strong descriptive power. I think they're very helpful in understanding some of the symptoms and experiences that we have in life, and I think that's okay. The problem is that's not the place where the APA stops. What the APA tries to do is to say this is useful in order to now give a prescription for how we help a person and fix these issues. And there are sort of two veins that you can go. One vein is the medical route, where you get on some sort of medicine and you try to treat, treat it that way. And you can go read all the research about that and how effective or really honestly ineffective a lot of that really is. The second route is to run the direction of therapy, okay, talk therapy. And there's debate overall as to which people think are the best from a secular approach. And what you probably don't know, you think it's all like monolithic and all of mental health moves in one direction and everybody agrees and it's the greatest thing on the planet. Uh, mental health is a, is a discipline right now that's in great struggle. Psychologists are fighting with psychiatrists because psychiatrists say, yes, the, the medicine, medicine is the route. The biological is the route. The psychologists are saying, no, the, the talk therapy is the route. And you sort of have this like intramural squabble that's happening. Do you see that? And so they would argue, the, the 
therapist would argue, well, everybody, if you just leave them alone after about six weeks' time, people return back to a state of feeling somewhat normal anyway. So they don't need medicine. Well, then the psychiatrist says, yes, but it, it is effective. It does help somebody at least stabilize out without therapy. So they have this constant intramural squabble, okay? So there's not, what I'm trying to say is there's not agreement on this approach, okay? What we do agree on is we experience feelings of hopelessness. And, and so what I would say is to hear their description, that's fine. But to understand their prescription, what they think is wrong and then what they think sorts out and fixes the problem, that becomes really problematic because they even admit themselves they don't know what causes it. Does that make sense? So it's really important that we don't start there. And what I hope that does is I think I hope it opens your, your mind to the scriptures. Because what I see mostly, particularly from pastors often, I see pastors who are closed-minded to these things because they think the mental health world has this whole thing sorted out. And so I often start in this place to help them to see, and we could go much, much deeper and much, much further relative to the research, is that maybe they don't have it figured out. Maybe, maybe they don't have an understanding of what harms a person or what helps a person. Maybe they don't have it figured out as to what causes some of these things and why human beings experience this level of despair. Maybe they don't have it figured out. And then we talk about the scriptures and what the scripture actually says about it. I think this is the place that we need to begin is the scripture. We should always ask first, what does the scripture have to say about something? And again, that's not a dis being dismissive of science. Um, one of the things I hope you can tell throughout this series that we've been doing for several months now is um, I, I enjoy to read science. I enjoy to read what's being proposed out there. I enjoy to find out what the secularists are saying about these things. I think it's important for us to understand these things. So we're not being dismissive about that, but we have to start in the place to understand what God says to be true about our human existence. Now, I've already read Psalm 42. I want you to go to Ecclesiastes Ecclesiastes. 11. Ecclesiastes 11. Now, we could take the whole of the book of Ecclesiastes, and we can find out what Solomon says about all of these things that God gives us under the sun. And that's really a euphemism, I think, or an expression for him to say, the way that we understand things here in the physical earth, in the world that we live in, in this world that's, you know, separated from God in his mind. He uses this idea of being under the sun. The way that we in our human reason sort of figure this whole thing out is how he's trying to describe it. And over and over again, what he does is he says, he, he even lists several good things that you pursue, good gifts from God, blessings that God gives to us. He, he lays these things out. And in the end of pursuing those things and trying to make sense of those good things, working and um, intimate partner and so on, he, he, as he pursues these things, what he finds out is to reason why these things exist and to pursue them simply for his own pleasure, what's his conclusion always? That they are meaningless and purposeless, that they are vain. Ecclesiastes 11 sort of gives a, a summary of that, verse 7 says, The light is pleasant, and it is good for the eyes to see the sun. Indeed, if a man should live many years, let him rejoice in them all, and let him remember that the days of darkness, for they will be many. Everything 
that is to come will be futility or vanity or meaningless. And he's describing this, if we don't understand life with God giving expression and explanation to all things, where the fear of God is ever before our eyes, isn't that consistent with what uh, the writer of the Proverbs says, what Solomon says in, in the beginning of Proverbs? Of course it is. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. He's reiterating that with experiences throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. In his conclusion, Right, verse thirteen. The conclusion, when all has been heard of a verse of chapter twelve, when all has been heard, fear God and keep His commandments, because this applies to every person. For God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. And He's saying you have to live life in relation to God, and He's the thing that gives meaning to everything else that you do in life to pursue that which is good. For, for those of you who, who work even outside of the church, to pursue that work is an honor to God when you do it as unto him. It becomes an act of worship. If you do that separated from, from God in mind and the reason that you do it becomes meaningless and purposeless. It's a pursuit of endless materialism. And then you find out when you get all those things, they don't really matter and they go away and you want more things. We experience the same reality that Solomon comes to. The whole point is this, life without God is vanity. Life without God is purposeless. Life without God is is hopeless. And in the end, what will we experience? Despair. 2 Corinthians 4, 11 and 12 really gives the great equalizer. Reminds us that all of us are gonna die. For we who live are always being given over to to death for Jesus' sake. So that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our mortal flesh, so death is at work in us. You ever thought about death in that way? That, that death, you moving toward death, the aches and pains, the experiences that you have that demonstrate that life is broken here on earth, those things are intended to allow you to not grab onto the things of the world for your hope. So that you grab onto the things of Christ so that now through him your life flourishes. It's quite a different contrast. So despair, sorrow, and despondency are more common to our human experience in a fallen world than we realize. And here's what I would argue, is that the reality that the Bible presents from Genesis 3 forward actually gives a better explanation than any other system that you can find, especially when it comes to tribulation and despair and sorrow. That it's real, It's common and that we experience it all the time. And maybe it's not all that abnormal. Because see, the diagnosis that you get is simply to say that you're not living normal life. You're living a life that's really abnormal, right? That's a dysfunction that you're living in. And what does the Bible say? Well, actually it's not. In a fallen world, to say that we will endure tribulation and struggle and that our emotions and our soul will be in conflict constantly is actually real to the, to the expression of reality that God gives in the scripture. I think we need to wrestle with that to some degree. The great Puritan George Swinnick said it like this, because I know what you're thinking. You're, you're thinking, okay, it's, it's those people who are not mature in the faith who really struggle with this stuff. That's what we often think. We think, well, it's, it's the people who just need to mature a little bit in Jesus and they won't be sad all the time, right? If, if you're like really secure in Christ and really mature in the Lord, you don't deal with that emotional stuff. And this is what 
George Swinnick says, the highest and holiest man's heart will not hold out forever. Even those who are mature struggle in life. Jesus says we're going to endure the same types of things that he endured. John 16, that in this world you will have trouble or tribulation. Godliness is not based upon the depths of, of one's feelings of despair, but upon where we run, how we wait patiently, and in what we hope for, uh, for our deliverance from our fainting heart. That's what matters. So in those moments, that's not necessarily a description of your maturity or holiness in relation to God. Sometimes it can be, and I'm going to distinguish that in a minute. But what we see scripturally is it matters in those moments where you go, how you wait on God in those moments is what reveals depth of maturity as we wait upon the Lord to to, uh, mend our broken heart. Now, what type of faulty ideas do we have? We have lots of faulty ideas about how we wrestle with darkness. Uh, The first one, which we've been trying to eradicate through this whole series, is that the church is not the place for this type of care. Surely when I feel like that, the church is not the first place I should go. That's a faulty idea. Scripturally, that's the best place you should go. Uh, That's the first place you should go. Uh, Number two is, is, and this is a big one. Please hear this. Um, This is one of the ways that we are deceived. You're deceived. I'm deceived at times with the experiences that we have. Is we get in the middle of those experiences and we start to feel like we are at the mercy of those dark experiences. That here you are, Uh, like a a cow that's being led to slaughter, that you're at the mercy of that experience. And you're tied to that experience and you must, by demand, go where that experience takes you. And here you are floundering in the wind, waiting on what's going to happen because this experience that I'm, I'm under right now. Now, this experience influenced you, no question about it. But you're at the mercy of God, not at the mercy of your experiences. What I want to give you is five basic reasons for the churning of the fainting heart. Five basic reasons that the scripture gives for why we find ourselves being faint of heart in the scripture. Why we find ourselves feeling hopeless and despairing that the scripture gives. Let's see if we can understand these. The first is when we're rebellious in sin when we're rebellious in sin against God. And these are issues that we struggle um, from within. We see this, for example, in Asaph in Psalm 73, where he says, why do the wicked prosper? And in that moment, he's finding himself uh, going down this spiral of despair as he looks at this and he's, he's like, God, I don't un- even understand who you are and what you're doing because you're allowing these people who are wicked to prosper. And what about me? I try to serve you with all that I am and I don't have the things that they have. And through a series of events, God, God corrects that. He helps Asaph to see very clearly with that verse at the very end, Psalm 73, 26, my heart and my flesh may fail, but you are my strength and my portion forever. So Asaph experiences, he's a pretty godly dude, wrote some of the Bible, right? Yeah, that's pretty impressive. David, Psalm 51, because of his rebellious sin, the experiences that he had, if you think about 
uh, him, I can't imagine what his life was like as he was twiddling his thumbs trying to figure out, uh, what do I do with Bathsheba? What do I do with Uriah? What do I do with them? Right? We dehumanize them in the scripture sometimes, don't we? We read over that and we're like, you know, he just sort of like logistically is making some decisions like a military general. No, I'm sure that he was wrestling in his soul. And I think we, we see that come out in multiple places, certainly in Psalm 51. We see that come out uh, when, when his son was at the point of death, where he's wrestling in the soul. He was a human being, and that's how he wrestled. Why? Because of the rebellion of his sin against God. What about Jonah? Bitterness regarding what God would do in Nineveh. And we see that through several points of that book uh, in Jonah's life. What about Solomon? Marrying foreign women, he was warned not to do that. Uh, And then in 1 Kings 11, exactly what God warned him about came to pass. After marrying foreign women, he began to build altars to to foreign gods, Molech being one of them where child sacrifices would, would occur. I mean, how do you go from writing Proverbs and Ecclesiastes to now you're building an altar to Molech? The rebelliousness of sin and what it does in the human heart, you should be warned. And that's what can happen to us. What about Saul? He was vexed, the Bible says, and tormented in his soul. I think of 1 Samuel 15, where he was told to go and to enact vengeance upon the Amalekites. And he goes and enacts vengeance to some degree, but he was told not to take any spoil. He was told to kill everybody, everybody. And he goes and makes sacrifice without Samuel being there. And then Samuel, later in uh, 1 Samuel 15, rectifies that, where he leaves Agag alive and he leaves sheep and all these different animals alive as the spoil. He disobeyed the Lord. And so because of that, he was vexed in soul. Really from that point on, as, as Samuel said, he rips the kingdom from him and his soul remained in, uh, vexed throughout the rest of his life. So it can be because of sin. And that needs to be one of the ways when you experience despair, that needs to be one of the questions that you ask and allow the word of God to to draw out from in your heart what is true about you. Maybe it is because of sin in your life that you need to wrestle with why you're experiencing vexation in, in the soul. Maybe it's not. There are lots of other reasons as to why we struggle. Maybe it's we undergo affliction from without, right? That's certainly the case with Job. And so what I'm saying is when we experience despair, even at the depths of degree where it's debilitating, it it, it does have meaning in our life, but there could be multiple explanations for it. And so when we become monolithic, just saying, well, if you have despair, then it's because of this. You have to be very cautious about that. Even some biblical counselors can can say, well, if if you're in despair, it's because you're sinning, let's sort that out. Right? That, that's the foolishness of Job's counselors, is it not? So if you think of Job, uh, he was afflicted from without. This was because of no sin personally on his own. And what does he experience? I mean, he, go, he has suicidal ideation. He fits criteria number nine in the DSM. I curse the day that I was even born. I don't even want to live in this state, he says. Right? And that's not because of sin in his own heart but because he was afflicted from without. Same with Naomi. Do you remember the story in the book of Ruth? 
She lost a husband and two sons and had two daughter-in-laws that she really had no idea what she was going to do. She didn't have a grandchild or an heir that would carry on her husband's name. She even comes back to Israel and she says, don't, don't call me that anymore. Don't call me Naomi, call me Mara. Why? Because I am bitter. Not that we can tell from any personal sin on her own, but because of the affliction that she's experiencing from without. What about when we, we witness wickedness? I think that's another thing that churns our soul. You take people like Jeremiah, for example. Was Jeremiah wrong in his depression? I mean, he wrote the book of Lamentations. You take the book of Jeremiah and you read the book of Jeremiah and you see all the experiences that he has. Even some of the fear to speak out before the Lord, but yet he's convinced that, that he's the man finally to speak for God. And he's even told that people are not going to turn back. And then he gets to the book of Lamentations and he lays out expressions from a longing heart, from a, a deeply despairing heart as he tries to hope in God. That's an experience of a godly man. I often ask some of the pastors that I train, was Jeremiah a successful man? Well, look, the way we count things in our modern culture, no, he wasn't. Not one convert, right? Who's going to send missionary money to that guy, right? Your newsletter was terrible, Jeremiah. Like, we can't have that. Uh, You've got to pick it up a little bit, right? That's sort of how we think about it. But, but really, what was, what was going on? You see, here's the interesting thing is that Jeremiah had the heart of God because he was seeing the depth of the wickedness. He was witnessing the w- wickedness of the Israelites to such a degree that he was seeing them the way God saw them. And his heart was breaking the same way that God's heart breaks over us and our sin. To see his people walk away from him, to deny him, not even to come back to him when he calls them to himself. And Jeremiah began to see them the same way that God saw them. I would argue Elijah's much the same way. Even after this amazing mountaintop experience, he finds himself in a cave. And he's believing something that's not true, but in the world in which he lived in, that was the reality. He thought he was the only dude left. And this woman was after him, right? And so now he's experiencing all of that. 900 prophets and seemingly the whole of Israel was on their side. Where remember, he tells them, choose today which side you're going to be on, right? He tells them to make sure that they choose. And he's seeing he's in the minority as to who wants to fear the Lord and who trusts in this God. And he finds himself in a cave later. This happens when we witness wickedness. Some of you might be on the cusp of fear and despair even now as you witness the wickedness that's happening in our country. Let me encourage you that that even when you're experiencing wickedness, there's a fine line between you fearing for yourself and you being able to take how you see the, the depth of wickedness that's happening in the world as God would see it and carrying that burden to him. Those are two radically different things. One can lead to sinful disposition where you become bitter, and the other leads to uh, intimacy with the Lord. And listen, don't measure your intimacy with the Lord that everything always has to be like perfection and joyous. Sometimes it is, as the psalmist expressed to us, a bitter weeping before him because we see the world the way he sees it. 
Jeremiah was definitely like that. And the wicked, those who do not know God, ought to experience a constant fainting of heart. And they're trying to fill themselves with all sorts of things, but in the end, it's futility. Listen to Isaiah 57. So, so what, here's what I would say is, you, as you work through the scriptures and you see these, these uh, issues of despair in yourself, it, it, it's being caused by some of these issues that we're, we're seeing. It could be sin. It could be you're undergoing affliction from without. It could be you're witnessing wickedness that's happening and you're seeing the way God sees what's going on. It could be because you're wicked. You do not know God. Isaiah 57 says this, but the wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet. Its waters toss up mire and dirt. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. That's really a similar description that you see in Colossians and Ephesians chapter 4, which we'll get to that uh, it's like a tossing to and fro of of every wind of doctrine. And your heart sort of bounces constantly at the mercy of how the sea is going to go. That's an expression of the wicked. Could be a revelation that that a person is not in the Lord. And the last one is bodily weakness. I think we see that consistently in Scripture where there is bodily weakness and there's a there's a despairing. I think it's really helpful to read through 2 Corinthians 4 in moments like that when our, our body is fading, when our flesh is fading. That's a part of the stroke of death to us. Remember. The sting of death cannot touch us, but we will all be touched by the stroke of death. And as you die, not just physically, as you die to your flesh, what's happening is a a constant you having to deal with death in that moment, right? And with that separation from the flesh, from the things of the world, and then ultimately when you have to deal with the reality of your own personal passing, There can be hints of despair because all the things that you held onto and held dear are now passing. And what you see is probably in that moment reality better than you've ever seen it before. And we see how much we love the things that we can see and touch and taste and smell versus how little we love God. But in the end, we see that he's the only thing that's there. And the intention behind all of that is that you cling tightly to him who never moves. The rock, the shelter, the fortress, the deliverer who is God. There's intention behind that. You think of, uh, of Hannah. I mean, she was weeping to such a degree that Eli thought, man, she's had one too many and it's morning. Like, what's going on, right? He thought something was going on. She was, she was pouring herself out. So this was something that was expressed even outwardly. And then I would, I would get you to think about Jesus as well. Uh, he is known even as a man of sorrows. And he tells us that we're going to experience uh, similar things as to, what, as to what he did. It's really important in moments like this that, that we remember. You, you ever thought about this? Why is it that God is revealed as rock and fortress and deliverer? Is, is because you will need him to be that. So when we think, well, all these experiences are abnormal, why is everybody else living a happy life and I can't seem to be happy? That's probably more normal than you think. Not everybody's life is the way it appears like on Facebook. It's just not true. And yet we've built a culture where we think that's normal. Please hear the words of Scripture that tribulation is normal. 
and the vexing of our soul for various reasons, as we just talked about, are common to the human experience. And those things are intended to allow your soul in relationship to God to flourish so that you cling to him. It's a tutor to you. It's a teacher to you to help you to run to God who is your rock, who is your fortress, who is your deliverer, who is your shelter, who is your hope. So don't dismiss him in that way. Don't dismiss him in that way. Go to Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11. I just want to finish here because I think it's, it's critical that we see the way in which Jesus approached this. You know, I find it interesting, one of the, even the, one of the criteria in the DSM is that we experience inappropriate guilt, right? One of, the, one of the biggest contributions of Sigmund Freud to the world in which you and I live in is the removal of legitimate guilt. You see, what psychology often tries to do is if they can remove legitimate guilt from a person, there can be a different explanation outside of some sort of religious or moral expression as to why you're struggling with what you're struggling with. And so if they can remove guilt, now they, they can create a different uh, painting or picture or portrait as to why you're struggling with the thing that you're struggling in and then offer some sort of remedy outside of the things of God. That's really the primary point. And so we struggle often with guilt and shame. That's why repentance is taught in the scripture, not as a one-time gig, right? If you're a believer, you repent and believe and you are justified. And then in sanctification, that process, you confess and repent constantly, unless you're perfect today, which John calls you a liar, okay? So we have to deal with the realities of that. We repent, all right? Matthew chapter 11. I, I, I want you to hear Jesus. And the reason I brought that up is because for many of us, in moments when we experience guilt and shame and despair and, and frustration, we don't want to run to God. We, we feel unworthy to run to God. Can we just get this out of the way? You are. You're unworthy. You have no business approaching God on your own righteousness. None. And this is the beauty of the testimony of Christ is because you can approach Christ clothed, not in your own guilt and shame, but in the realities of the righteousness of Christ. And so what's the call whenever you feel like that? What's the call when it's legitimate that you've experienced guilt and shame and despair over the realities of life because they're real? The call is to come to Christ. Listen to Matthew chapter 11. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and of earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to to infants. Yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Verse 28, let's look at the context at which he calls us to come to him. The way that we think about it in our American individualistic, perfectionistic culture is we think the only people worthy to come to him are those who have it together, right? Clean this up and then you'll be good. You can come to Jesus. That's sort of the picture. That, that's not the testimony that, that Jesus gives here, Right? What he says is, come to me. Okay, like, I'm interested in that, 
Because remember, in this whole gospel, we've already seen the power of Jesus and what he can do. Like, I want to hang out with that guy. Okay, come to me. Okay, how do I do that? Here's what qualifies you. All who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. See, what we've been talking about the whole time is what it means to have a burdened soul. What we've been talking about the whole time is the ways in which we, in our humanity, strive to do everything perfectly, yet what we find out in the end is what Solomon testified. And we experienced is that in the end of those things, it's futility, it's vanity, it's purposeless. You're left hopeless. And what Jesus says is if, if you've done that, you're weary and heavy laden, come to me. You see, here's the beauty of, I think, what we need to pay attention to. Often, especially people in the church who try to integrate secular psychology into the mold of doctrines of Scripture, they'll say something like this. Well, the Bible never gives a specific way to deal with the modern problems that we have in life. I find that interesting because I think this claim here is very strong from Jesus. You're experiencing unrest in the soul. You're weary and heavy laden by all the things you're trying to do to make yourself appropriate in life or acceptable to whatever degree that is or whatever measuring stick you're using. And what does Jesus say? Come to me. See, that's a statement that he's the source of something that we need. Not just as one of many substances that will help us through the difficulties of life. He's saying, come to me because I am the source of rest. Because isn't that what we're all seeking when our souls are restless? when our souls are hopeless, when our souls are despairing and all the things that we grab at seem to vanish before our faces and they, they don't add meaning and value and purpose in life, Jesus says, come to me. This is similar to the testimony of Scripture in Psalm 19, 7. It's the law of the Lord that's perfect, which revives the soul. So the word incarnate and the word written, that's the thing that, God testifies, restores the burdened, broken, restless heart that all of you experience to some degree and on some level. Come to me. And he says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. This is, this is the discipleship process. That's an educative term. He's telling us to come and learn of him. Come to see his ways. And this is why in the New Testament, you always hear to follow, follow this way. Go Jesus's way, walk with him. That's the idea, right? That's taking his yoke. What's his yoke? The, the commands that he gives, the call that he gives as we trust and believe and are empowered by the spirit now to walk with him. And he's saying this yoke is easy and his burden is light. Why? Because it's not you performing to gain acceptance before God. It's the work of the spirit in you to now do and perform for the sake of, of God and his name. Take my yoke upon you, for I am gentle and humble. How many of you, that one phrase shocks your mind about who you think God really is? That he's waiting, he's sitting up there with some stick, and he cannot wait for you like the whack-a-mole to like hit you over the head because you did something wrong. And yet Jesus is revealing this is his character. And, and by the way, uh, he, in his character, he never changes. He doesn't wake up today like you do and you, you, things aren't going well and so you're fickle and you treat people differently when you wake up in a bad mood or whatever. Like Jesus wakes up the same, or he's up the same all the time, right? To use the metaphor, that was really poorly done. 
But the idea is that Jesus is gentle and Jesus is lowly. Why does he need to be lowly? Because that's where you are. And you're the one who needs to come. And what does he say? He's humble in heart and you will find rest for your soul. So what's he doing? He's doing soul care. And whose responsibility is it? Jesus. Jesus makes a really strong claim that that the intention of how we deal with the vexations of the soul, real psychology, real study of the soul, Jesus says, "That's, that's my domain. You come to me and I'm the one who gives you rest for your soul. Now let me In the last minute that we have, I'm going to take the whole hour, okay? In the last minute that we have, let me give you a couple of things that I think will help to cultivate, will help to cultivate these things when you're walking through experiences of vexation and despair. The Psalms are super helpful here because they deal with the raw realities of life, okay? Number one, ask God to look and see our disgrace. Don't you hear that constantly? God, look to see. God, pay attention to the difficulty that I'm walking through. There's nothing wrong with that. It shows a heart that's posturing toward God, and you want him to be intimately involved. The second thing, ask God to remember your affliction. That's a constant prayer in the scriptures. Remember me in my affliction. The third thing, ask God to remember his steadfast love and kindness. This is what Hezekiah did. This was constant. In the Old Testament, something that's similar in the New, the, to posture ourselves, Lord, remember your loving kindness, your steadfast covenant love to your people. And that's good not just to uh, call that out to him, but in you calling it out to him, you remember he is a God that's full of steadfast love. Ask God for justice upon the wicked and the oppressor, right? The imprecatory Psalms, I think that's, that's pretty significant. Is God, you do justice because you are the one who holds vengeance and you will do what's right because you're the judge of all the earth. Uh, Pray the prayer of Jeremiah in Lamentations 5. Lord, restore us, restore me to myself. Same call as Jesus here. Restore the joy of my salvation. Restore rest to my soul. It's okay to pray that your, your conscience is being condemned, that you are being oppressed right now. And whatever it is in making you miserable, pray that God would have mercy upon you. Why? Because you're not at the mercy of your dark experiences. You're at the mercy of God. And that's it. And then to finish in this place of complete desperation and despair, leaning into Christ that he is your only hope. And it's okay to confess that to him. It's a good reminder in your prayer. You're reminding your heart. You're teaching your heart. You're instructing your heart that he really is your only hope in life and in death. Let me pray. Lord, we're so grateful for the wisdom that you give. Certainly there's much more that we could say from your word about how to deal with these very real, normal experiences that we have. But Lord, we don't need to walk through these alone. That's a part of what the, the culture has told us is that we're, we're stigmatized if we experience these things, something's wrong with us. And Lord, You invite us to come to you, not to stay isolated, which the evil one would have as he seeks 
like a roaring lion those who he may, who he may devour. And Father, we pray that you would help us to trust one another, help us to trust in you as we, we walk through these things together as a fellowship and as a body, and that we would point each other to you who is the restorer of our despairing, fainting souls. Help us, Lord, we pray by your word in Christ's name. Amen.